Well, we are continuing to study the topic of reconciliation and uh, working through conflict. We're going to continue on with that today. Some time back, my wife brought home a light fixture from the ReStore. And it was a uh, beautiful chandelier-looking thing and got it for a great price and held it up with great victory and says, "I, I want this painted. And so I dragged my feet and dragged my feet until finally she went outside and sanded the thing. And I said, yes. <laughs> the preparation for a paint job is, is usually more work than the paint job. So when she finally got it sanded, then I went out and cleaned it up and sprayed paint on it and... and uh, you know, did the important manly work, I guess you'd say. Getting paint to stick on a surface is a process that has several steps involved, uh, depending on the, the surface and the paint and all of that. Cleaning, sanding, cleaning off the sanding stuff, you know, getting it all ready and spray, spraying it or brushing it in just the way, right way. In many paint jobs, the process takes more time. We had a friend who painted all the cabinets in her kitchen. And she was a real ambitious uh, go-getter, a young married woman. And boy, those old brown cabinets had to go. So she painted them all. And within a week, the paint was going and literally falling off of the cabinets. And she she said, I don't know what happened. I said, did you sand that varnished, shiny surface before you put the paint on? No. I said, well, that's the problem. There is a process to go through, and if you don't follow the process, the end result doesn't come out very well. God has given us a process to follow in bringing about reconciliation when relationships are broken or and or when a brother or sister is caught in sin and ensnared in sin. And God has given us a process, and we need to follow it. And today... We're coming to the second step in this process, which is one that many people do not want to follow. Follow as I read from Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. We're going to look at verse 16 today in this process. We, we looked at verse 15 last week and, and the importance of us going directly to people who have sinned against us or who may just be in sin and need to be reconciled to God. And he says, go to them, talk to them, do it humbly, do it meekly, get that log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of theirs. Work on that. And often, if we go in a humble way, in a sincere way, in a loving way, there is reconciliation or restoration, and both lives move forward. But sometimes they don't want to acknowledge their sin, and there is no reconciliation or restoration. And that's when God says, go again and take somebody with you. And so I want to ask this question today and answer it. How does involving a second person enhance the process of confrontation? How does it? 
And I think God gives us the answers in his word. And uh, the first one is this. It adds weight to the confrontation. And, and uh, I think this adds weight in two directions. It adds weight for the person who feels they need to confront, and it adds weight for the person being confronted. If I feel the need to confront a brother or sister, and I, and I think, okay, God told me I have to take somebody with me if they won't listen to me, then I have to go to the brother or sister and say, will you come with me over here? Uh, at the fair, I ran into a pastor friend, a colleague of mine from a church in eastern Washington, and uh, we talked pastor stuff, and that was real fun. And then he goes, hey, I've got a question for you. <laughs> and he told me about a situation. Somebody came to him and said, I want you to do this process with me. Uh, I want you to help me do Matthew 18. And the guy says, okay, what? And this person is not well known to him and his church. He's kind of kind of somebody who's there once in a while. And so the fellow said, well, some people told some lies about me. And my pastor friend said, well, tell me the rest of the story. Well, no, I can't really tell you that. And they talk some more about it. And, and then the guy says, well, at, at least I want to be able to go and apologize. And my pastor friend said, well, which is it? Do you need to apologize or do you need to confront? You know, And, and the guy wouldn't tell him the story. And so my pastor friend said, no, I won't go with you. Do you know there might be some times when somebody comes to you and says, I want to confront somebody, and you say, tell me the story. And you listen to it and say, I, I, don't, think, I don't think I want to go with you to do this. I think you're the person who needs to change. Or, you know, there could be multiple things. But if I am going to take somebody with me, I have to be able to honestly, openly go and say, here is my situation. I've tried to talk personally. Will you please come and help me? And if I have a godly case, it's going to be obvious. So there's a weight added to the front end of this, but there's also a weight added to the person being confronted. It's one thing for a single person to come and say, hey, I have a problem with something you did or said or, or a concern about your life. It's another thing for two people to be coming. Or if I read the scripture correctly, maybe it's not just specifically two, but it could be two or three because he says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. And so this, this process of bringing somebody along adds weight. If a mature brother or sister comes with me, it's going to increase the pressure on the person that I'm confronting. God created us. And God created this system. That means he knows that bringing somebody else with into the process enhances the process. It strengthens the process. It adds weight to the process. And frankly, it ought to make me think real hard about what I'm doing before I bring somebody else in. The second thing that this does to, to the process of confrontation is it adds validation. And I think that is a primary emphasis in this passage. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Now, this is a, a normal process that God put in place in the Old Testament. Uh, in Deuteronomy 19, one witness shall not rise against a man. 
concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Um, I guess suffice it to say there wasn't DNA evidence in the Old Testament time. There weren't video cameras to record what people did. Um, all of those kinds of things. And this, this standard was not just a standard between people, but it was a legal standard. And so God said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, lest you think this is an Old Testament standard only, here we see it in the New Testament. This will be the third time that I'm coming to you, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. That was written in the context of the Apostle Paul going to see the Corinthians, and the Corinthians had, uh, some, some people in their church had made accusations against Paul. There were problems in the church, and Paul said, look, I'm going to come, and we're going to deal with this stuff. But, he said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. What is it that gets established by the multiple witnesses? Well, first of all, it's the words and ways of the two people involved. They're validated by a third or fourth party. We have a phrase in our society now, it's a he said, she said problem. And that arises from a situation where a man and a woman are having a dispute and uh, one of them says one thing and one of them says the other thing and it's a he said, she said problem because there's nobody else there to view it. God says, I know those kind of things are going to happen. And so if somebody else comes, then the words and the ways of the people involved are going to be validated by the third or the fourth party if you bring more than one person with you. We also understand that this would be a natural part of the process. A third party can help each of the others to see their words and ways more objectively. One of the points that I didn't put in my sermon, but maybe I'll just take a minute to, to go here, because my pastor friend said this, and, and I had to meditate on it for a while to realize what happened. My pastor friend said, I've done this process before and it doesn't work. And I thought, what's that mean? You know what it means? What it means is I did this process and the outcome I wanted to get, I didn't get. Do God's processes always accomplish God's desired result? Yes, they do. And that's why this point right here. See, I might be going to confront somebody, but when my, my mature brother or sister who has come with me listens to all of this, they might say, hey, Dave, got to tell you, bud, you're the one who needs to change here. That's the objectivity I'm talking about. A third party can help each party see. Because as we talked about in previous studies, if I am going with the desire that God's will be done, that God's ways win out, then if I'm wrong, I want to find that out. Or if I'm partially wrong or a little wrong or whatever it is, I'm not just here to be right and them wrong. I'm here for us to be reconciled and go forward. And the third party helps with that. <clears throat> When, 
I believe I have the child right, so help me if I'm wrong here, dear, because I, I like to always be factual. But when my son Ben brought his then-girlfriend to our dinner table for the first time, I think she was taken aback a little bit by the volume and quantity of words. Isn't that right? Wasn't that her? I, it was. You never came to our dinner table before, early on there, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was because she came from a more quiet and reserved kind of family. And our family was such that when the children were little, one of them started raising their hands so they could get to talk at the dinner table. I think that was also Ben. You know, the, the, one of the girls at least was going on and on, and he raised his hand. I said, yes, Ben, and then he started talking, you know. And that's the way our family was. Now, I'm not defending that. I'm not saying that's the best way, the only way, the right way. But what I am saying is if a person from that family goes to talk to somebody like from Gloria's family, who has a different way, there can be a misinterpretation of how things are done. And the third party can come alongside and say, hey, let me help you understand something here. You two are misunderstanding each other. Your manner, your words, your expression is not being understood right or vice versa. There's great value in bringing a person with us. God knows that. He knows the value that it brings to the process. And so he commends us and commands us that when we can't resolve a problem on our own, we bring somebody with us. The third thing that this brings to the process of confrontation is it demonstrates God's concern. What is God's concern for each of our lives all the time? If I get up in the morning and I say to myself, I'm going to do what God wants today, it's one word. You're on the right track. Righteousness. God wants me to live righteously. That's what he wants. When I go into a confrontation, I should know that what God wants more than anything is righteousness. And this prescription that God has written of take someone with you shows us how important he thinks it is. See, he could say, well, go talk to your brother. If he won't listen to you, well, that's just too bad. There's nothing else you can do. No, God said, you go talk to your brother, and if he won't listen to you, you take somebody else with you, because I am concerned for righteousness to prevail in your life and his life. Look at an example of this from the Old Testament. You remember David sinned greatly with Bathsheba. There was murder, there was adultery, there was lying. And God sent Nathan to David in a a powerful, powerful story from the Bible Nathan, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, Nathan the prophet, and he, he came to David and said to him, there were two men in one city. He tells him a story, a parable. One rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished it. It grew up together with him and his children. He, it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup. This is really a messed up farmer. (laughs) And it lay in his bosom. That man, he slept right here with him, and it was like a daughter to him. 
And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, do you know the story here? What he's saying is there was a rich man who had company. And to feed his company, he wouldn't take out of his own flock. He went and took the other lamb and fed it. He fed this lamb that was loved by this man who only had one lamb. He took it and fed it to his company. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That's how God saw what David did. David took another man's wife, and that man was not a rich man. He didn't have multiple wives. He, he didn't have much, but he had this one wonderful relationship. And David took her to himself and then had him murdered. And when David heard the story just about a lamb, he went, oh, that's terrible. And David point, Nathan point, I can imagine Nathan pointing his finger at him and going, you are the man. See, God sent Nathan because God wanted David to be right. And look what David, how he responded. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, that is when he hung on to his sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. See, the Holy Spirit was working on David the whole time before Nathan came. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity. I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Nathan was the best friend David ever had. If Nathan hadn't gone to David, maybe David would not have confessed his sin. And he would have lived in the drought of summer, spiritually. God is concerned with righteousness. That's why he has prescribed this system. There's another great conf uh, confrontation. Well, here's a, a New Testament example of this. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you, true companion, Paul is writing to the pastor of the church, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. God is so concerned that we be righteous and that we get along in righteousness that he has prescribed this system. Oh, did I leave? Oh, I know what i got to do. Turn with me, please. Or you won't understand the title of my sermon. Turn with me to Numbers 23. I'm so used to putting all of the scripture on the screen that I forgot I'm, I'm asking you to turn to Numbers 23. Great story here from the Old Testament about how God confronted somebody. Numbers 23. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare for me seven rams. Um, 
Balaam was a prophet. And there was a king who wanted Balaam to go out and pronounce a curse on God's people. Now, God has not given us the authority to just curse people or bless people and and everything we say comes true. But there are times, there were times in God's economy when he gave words through his prophets and those words came true because it was God's truth being communicated through the prophet. Now the ungodly, the ungodly king who came, Balak, who came to Balaam, he didn't understand all of how God worked. He just knew that whatever Balaam said happened. And so he comes to Balaam and he says, curse Israel for me. So Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me and prepare for me seven bowls. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering. I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Balaam understood that God didn't talk to him just every time he asked, but he said, perhaps God will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height, and God met Balaam, and he said, I have prepared the seven altars. I have offered each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, the prophet, and said, Return to King Balak, and this is how you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up this oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Amram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob or Israel for me. Come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him. From the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or, the, or number one-fourth of Israel, let me die the death of righteousness and let my end be like his. Talking about being like a, a child of Israel. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and look, you have blessed them. So he answered and said, must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? I can only say what God tells me to say. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you, which you may see them. You shall, not, you shall see only the outer part of them and shall not see them all. Curse them for me there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim and the, and the top of Pisgah and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering. And they go through all this process again and Balaam comes back and he goes, Can't do it, can't do it. So um, so then, oh, where are we at here? I've not written down all of the right verses. I'm going to follow it down. Just, to, just give me a minute. Just speak, talk amongst yourself for just a minute there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Let's go to verse 22 of chapter 22. Then God's anger was aroused. He was, God was angry with Balaam because he went with King Balak. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way. At a point in time, Balaam got on his donkey with normal means of 
transportation and was riding somewhere. And God's anger was aroused because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. And by the way, when the Old Testament uses the phrase, the angel of the Lord, uh, it most often is a reference to Jesus Christ himself making an appearance uh, in an angelic form. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword, with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balak struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between vineyards and with a wall on one side and a wall on the other side. They're going through a real tight spot. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balak's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further. In a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. He beat the poor donkey. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? <laughs> you think Balaam would say, What in the world? <laughs> but no, he just talks to the donkey. <laughs> and Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me. <laughs> Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? All of this conversation is presupposed on the fact that Balaam should have known better than to be going to talk to this king. Balaam knew the right thing to do and he was ignoring it. Verse 32, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you and let her live. Now, remember folks, this is a prophet through whom God talked. And God was so opposed to the unrighteous way in which he was about to do things, he was ready to kill the prophet to stop him. Does God do that? Yes, God does. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, immorality among you, and sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. 
He's talking about something that was going on and being tolerated in a church. That a man has his father's wife. And you, you as a church, you're puffed up, proud. And you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, or I, indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's some harsh words. That is how much God is concerned for righteousness. Now, does God do this every time? No, he does not. But what it tells me is, I should not flaunt God's method of confrontation. I don't want to wait for the donkey to talk. God talked to... Balaam knew what was right and wrong. But he kept going and he kept going. And finally God made his donkey talk. He said, quit it! You're doing the wrong thing. Don't you see the angel of the Lord? What's wrong with you? When somebody comes to confront you... When somebody comes to ask about your behavior, you should say, thank you, God, that you care enough to send them. And if it gets to the point where two people have to come, you should be twice as much saying, thank you, God, for getting my attention before I run into the angel of the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is going to kill everybody who fails to listen to a confrontation. But Hebrews 12 tells me, if I live in sin, God will do something to chastise me. Because he wants me to walk in righteousness. And so, the confrontation of a friend, or a friend and another friend, ought to be a welcomed event not because it is easy or fun, but because it will help me walk in righteousness. That's why I would submit to you that this is a merciful process. This, is, this brings mercy into the process of confrontation. Anything that God uses to lead us to righteousness is merciful. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians... says to them, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to change. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance or change, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you're here to talk to me. I'm sorry we can't just sweep this under the rug. That's godly, that's godly sorrow, or ungodly sorrow, worldly sorrow. 
But the godly sorrow is, oh, man, I hate to admit it, but I've done wrong. And God says that is a good thing because it will lead to change. And that is a merciful process. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's a synonym for God's word, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If I want to bless you, I help you live in righteousness. If I don't love you, I stay away from the hard work of confrontation and I just keep to myself because it's easier to keep to myself and not make waves, not ruffle the feathers. But if I love you, and if I want you to know the blessing of God, then I have to help you walk in the perfect law of liberty. Think about yourself being on the receiving end of confrontation. Do you want a life of hardship or blessing? The path to contentment is righteousness. The path to peace is righteousness. The path to joy is righteousness. The path to love is righteousness. So if God sends me a confrontation, I need to receive it. Back in Matthew chapter 18, I just want to read this again and, and, and make this last point. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. The fifth reason, the fifth thing that this brings to the process is God's power. And the reason it brings God's power is very simple, because it is communicated to us in God's Word. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God has not promised power to me as an individual, to you as individuals. He has not promised power to some human tools of manipulation, but he has promised power here in this word. That's why when you as an individual learn the word and say, God, I want to live this today, and you go out and you make choices based on the word, it's not just a behavior added on. God actually changes you. He changes you into a different person. This is a powerful stuff. And so when God tells me I need to confront and I need to take somebody with me, then I need to say, okay, because it is God's word. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. My pastor friend said 
this doesn't work. And he wasn't criticizing God. He was just saying, I've tried and it doesn't work. But I would submit to you, and not, without talking to him about other situations, I would submit to you that if he followed that process, God accomplished something in someone. He may not have restored every relationship in which it was tried, but God accomplished his work. And so we have to move forward following God's plan because we believe in God, not because we understand how this will all work out. I mean, if, if we were going to live our lives based on what we can figure out, we would stop witnessing about Christ because the vast majority of people do not believe. Does that mean we the truth is bad? Does that mean we should have did it some other way? Well, you know, maybe. The truth is some people will just reject. That doesn't mean God didn't accomplish something. This brings power. Years ago, someone came to talk to me about their spouse. And they said, my spouse, this, 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 this. Now, friends, I'll let you in on a clue. The scripture says the first one who declares his case looks to be right on until you hear the other side of the case. And I understand that. I understand that completely. So I don't form an opinion of the other person and think, oh, they're terrible because this person said they were. But I obviously know there's a problem. There's a problem. This person is so concerned, so broken up that they've come to see me. And they, their heart is broken because their spouse doesn't treat them right. And I thought, well, and they said, I've tried to talk to my spouse and my spouse won't listen. And I said, I'll go with you. Matthew 18, let's go, let's go talk to your spouse. Oh no, oh no. That would make them mad. Well, I, I understand that. I expect you're right. You know your spouse better than I do. So what, do you want to wait for the donkey to talk? I didn't say that. I'm not that bad. That's what I think, though. What are you going to do? We went on and talked more and more and talked about more about their situation. And finally they said... I guess there's nothing we can do. That's when Pastor Dave goes into desk climbing mode. <laughs> what? <do> you... <laughs> yes, there's something we can do, but you don't want to do it. Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, my, honestly, my heart breaks because we've got to at least try to do what God says. God said it, not me. It's not my idea. Now, even more years ago, a woman came and talked to me about her husband in another church far, far away. They had been part of our church, and time and uh, life circumstances had caused them to move on. And uh, there was a serious problem in their relationship. And she came crying, telling me about her husband. And she had talked to him. Wouldn't listen, just kept on in his behavior. And I would say this, that his behavior was the precursor to worse behavior. I would put it that way. So it's vital that he stop now before it gets worse. 
This person had been uh, significant in the church and knew me well, and I knew him well. And they lived several hundred miles away. And when she said, I've talked to him and he won't listen, I said, you tell him I'm coming to visit. You tell him I'm coming. And uh, frankly, I wasn't looking forward to an eight-hour drive. I didn't know how or when I would do it, but I'm going to go because that's what God says we have to do. And in two days, that man was sitting in my office repenting. Not because of me, but because his wife was willing to say, if God said it, I'll do it. Folks, we do not know the power of God's word till we obey God's word. This is powerful because it's God's. It's time to have the front brakes redone in my car. And I'm thinking about having it done at the dealer. I think I'd wise up one of these days. I get coupons from them. Only this much. I want to call them up and say, really? You see, I don't trust them on the price. I trust them on the work. I know they're going to do great work, because if they don't, I'm going to be bringing it back on the guarantee. You know how that goes. But I don't trust them on the price. You know why? Because I believe they have their interest at heart, not mine. They can talk about customer service all they want. They're trying to make a buck. And I understand that's the way the world works. And so I don't fully trust them. Do you think God has your interest at heart? I would submit to you, if you won't trust something he has said, you don't believe he's got your interest at heart. If you won't believe that he said Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, that you are a sinner and that without your faith in Christ, you will go to hell. If you don't believe that, you don't believe God has your best interest at heart. If you won't confront when it needs to be done, and if you won't follow God's process, you don't believe God has your best interest at heart. God, help us. To obey. Help us to obey you. And Father, I would desperately pray for a visible evidence of your blessing when we obey. We need to be encouraged. We need to see that you're at work. We need to know that you're at work. And that's our weakness, and you know it. And so I would just pray that when we obey, you will bless and you will show us what you're doing, whether it looks like what we wanted to happen or not, but we will be able to see that you are working through this process. Father, help us. It's hard to live righteously, especially when it comes to this area of confrontation and reconciliation and restoration. Help us to have your heart in it. I pray in Christ's name, amen.